It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. Hey, it's Fatma Sayed, and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics and the Eastern bastards on Western televisions. Friends, uh, tonight the members of our party completed a democratic exercise in accountability. The result is not what I hoped for, or frankly what I expected. And that is why tonight... I have informed the president of the party of my intention to step down as leader of the United Conservative Party. Today, we'll dig into the chaos happening in the Alberta legislature, where Premier Jason Kenney resigned as leader of his party and his potential replacement allegedly challenged a colleague to a fistfight? And the U.S. is negotiating a major trade deal in the Indo-Pacific without us. Sad trombone. Is it a sign that we're not important, or is it fine? Joining me this week, making a debut appearance on the backbench from Jason Kenney's backyard, Catherine Grykowski, reporter for Alberta Today. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm looking, looking forward to the discussion. From Ottawa, a man who loves trade talks almost as much as he loves budget documents, Murad Hamadi, reporter at The Logic. Hi. And former Albertan, current... Ottawan? Ottawan? Yes, that's what they're called. I just don't know how to pronounce it. Stuart Thompson, editor-in-chief of The Hub. Hey, guys. Let's get into it. So there's a lot going on in the Canadian conservative movement right now. For one, there's the ongoing federal leadership race where the frontrunners, Polyev and Charest, seem to legitimately hate each other. And Doug Ford is almost certainly on his way to a second term in Ontario this week when voters go to the ballot box on Thursday. And then there's Alberta. About a week and a half ago, Premier Jason Kenney underwent a leadership review after a long period of infighting in the United Conservative Party. He got 51.4% of the vote, which means he had the confidence of the majority and the mandate to continue. But shockingly to everyone in the room, he resigned. Now, Catherine, 
walk us through what happened. Like, let's go back to the beginning for a second. Jason Kenney has been facing challenges to his leadership for a long time. So how did this start and what brought it to a boiling point? So throughout the pandemic, there were a lot of challenges and basically there's a dozen or more UCP MLAs, backbench MLAs, who were questioning his decisions. He had managed to stave off caucus revolts a number of times, and the last time he put down a caucus revolt was when he said, okay, I will do the leadership review in the spring instead of the fall. And that was not without controversy because a lot of the constituency association presidents, they wanted to have this thing in person. The board says okay, we'll have it in Red Deer, and this avalanche of people, like this hotel can only hold like a thousand people, and an avalanche of people registered for this review, and they said, whoa, we can't have it safely in person. And so they moved to mail-in ballots, and this upset a lot of the, the party. They're saying, like, this is going to be rigged, this sucks. But they had the mail-in vote, so... Leading up to this, reporters were asking, like, what's that number you need to stay on? We had heard it was about 60-65%, but out loud, Jason Kenney says, 50% plus one is a majority. 50% plus one is a majority. And lo and behold, as if he were manifesting it, he got 50% plus 1.4. So when we first heard that number, we are like, okay, he's going to stay on. He got what he wanted. And then, as you mentioned, there was these groans and gasps as he said, I can no longer continue on as leader. And then JK stands for Jason Kenney, and just kidding, he is going to be staying on as a leader until at least September or whenever the leadership review is held. So how much of this was about the pandemic, Catherine, and how much was it about other stuff? So Jason Kenney has said, hey, let's not let this COVID thing. It was a once in a hundred year event. He has said it was about COVID. I would argue it is about so much more. It is about the collapse in rural healthcare. He's made a, a series of very contentious decisions. The curriculum has torn the party apart. There's coal mining in the Rockies, which was a deeply unpopular decision that he's had to walk back. So it's really about so much more. I mean, he united this party, this big tent party, but it's really like any united conservative movement, a very motley crew. You have the libertarians saying the government needs to get out of our business, sitting next to these like law and order, yay police types. You have the government shouldn't be picking winners and losers sitting next to, won't somebody think of the job creators? We need more support for employers. So there's these disparate ideologies all crammed together. So <laughs> there's this infighting. And I, and I think we're seeing that too at the federal level. There's um, populist versus establishment. It's the same old story in conservatives. They win when they're together. They lose when they are apart and fighting. I want that to be like a sitcom premise, just like people with different government views uh, sitting side by side, just arguing. But more seriously, Stuart, months ago, as Kenny was struggling, you made a point of order on this show asking whether anyone felt bad for him being in this impossible situation of trying to reconcile this diverse group of interests uh, within the UCP that Catherine just described. So what did you make of the leadership results? Yeah, I actually managed to be in the room when Jason Kenney announced his resignation. It was a very interesting event because, you know, there's all the, the premier staff. Many of them had taken leaves to, to work on this campaign to basically save his butt. 
And the vibe I got when I got there at 4.30 was very different than the vibe five minutes before the speech began. So they seem to think, and I'm pretty sure Jason Kenney thought, he said it during a speech and I don't think he was, uh, I think he was telling the truth. I think they thought they were going to win. And winning to them meant like, as Catherine said, they were expecting 60, 65, something manageable that they could move forward with. And then I'll never forget when one of the uh, press people came over and said, uh, the premier is going to give a speech in a couple of minutes. We're actually ready to go now. And she looked just white as a ghost. And that was the moment where I thought, okay, like this is going to be different than what I expected. I think what it told me though, is that the premier didn't expect these people to be so organized that they could basically match him um, in organization and, you know, get that 50-50 vote share. And I've mentioned this too in this podcast that this is a really interesting thing for Canadian politics is if these people can actually organize themselves, um, supporting parties, infiltrating existing parties, then we have a serious political uh, question on our hands. So, you know that Pierre Polyev is going around getting these big rallies in the conservative leadership vote. And one of the things we've wondered is, is this just people venting? Are they just out mm-hmm. there for a party and to like, say, F Justin Trudeau and all that kind of stuff? Or are they actually politically active and going to vote in the conservative leadership race? I would say now, based on the results with Kenny, it's more likely that we see these people as an effective political force. In the federal election, it was sort of expressed through the People's Party of Canada, which didn't really do all that much. They beat their previous vote totals. They got like 5% across the country. But I think if you can find these little areas where they can have a bigger effect, an outsized effect, because, you know, you can take over a leadership vote with a few tens of thousands of votes or a conservative leadership race, you can take that over with very few people compared to a national election. So I think that's probably the fundamental lesson is we have a new force in our hands here. Murad, while Stuart and Catherine are in Alberta watching this live, you and I are in Ontario. You're watching this from Ottawa. What are your thoughts and and what are you seeing happening at the Hill when this happens? Well, it's interesting to think about sort of the the profile of Jason Kenney, right? If you think back to the conservative leadership race minus one, there have been so many in my time here. The federal race between Peter McKay and Aaron O'Toole, it was a big deal when Jason Kenney endorsed Aaron O'Toole, when he came out for reasons that sort of the in the ether have may have had as much to do with how he feels about Peter McKay as he did about Aaron O'Toole. But it was a big deal. It was like, I remember there being columns and people talking about, you know, this is the single biggest endorsement in this leadership race because Stephen Harper has generally, uh, you know, at least explicitly stayed out of leadership races subsequent to his departure. So, you know, Kenny was the biggest get you could get and, and O'Toole got him and O'Toole ultimately got over the line. And, you know, he won a bunch of those Alberta points in their system. And, you know, who's to say he wouldn't have won them anyway? But it was a big deal. And today, Jason Kenny leaves as a diminished figure, not just in Alberta, but nationally. The import of this man who was such a face for the party's get-out-the-vote efforts federally for years does not have the same sway in the province that he picked to go back to that he did before that cannot but hurt him on the national stage. You know, the, the sort of like 
Aaron O'Toole Leadership Campaign Edition, Andrew Shear Leadership Campaign Edition, sized hole in this leadership race is being filled by Pierre Polyev. And Pierre Polyev does not need Jason Kenny to win Alberta, probably. But to Stuart's point about like how that voting block that unseated Kenny translates nationally, uh, you know, the question is how does that sweep out over 338 ridings? Can it be effective? Catherine, you've been nodding a lot <laughs> while Stuart and Narad have been talking. Tell me what you're thinking. As I look at the f- federal endorsements of O'Toole and Sheer, I do think that at that time, Kenny was maybe more powerful in the conservative movement than O'Toole. And it's kind of wild to think that looking back to 2019, would I have thought that Justin Trudeau would outlast Jason Kenny as, as head of the party? No, not at all. He had come back to Alberta, sort of the savior of the conservative movement here, picked up the pieces, did what nobody could do. And he has this reputation as a masterful organizer. And I think, I think he kind of has fallen down, not just in his own leadership review, but the one test was in his competitor, Brian Jean, who ran in a a by-election to replace um, Layla Goodrich, who is now an MP in, in Alberta, he was not able to organize to allow Brian Jean's competitor to re- win the nomination. And I think that was a signal that a Brian Jean ran an explicitly anti-Jason Kenney campaign. And so he's sitting in his caucus uh, opposed to the leader. So I think what Murad said was correct, that he's a diminished man. But I think what this summer, since he's staying on as leader, is going to be about is about sort of his rehabilitation of his his image, tying a bow on his legacy. But yeah, I think he's going to stay away from, from any kind of endorsements uh, in this leadership race, because who's the stinking albatross now? It would be Jason Kenney. You, you want to stay away. He's staying away from Ontario, where he previously campaigned for the Ontario PCs. So it's it's quite quite something to see this this collapse. You get to this really interesting point, because... There's a cohort of Harper MPs who have never done anything else in their lives. Jason Kenney is one of those people. And I know there will be people who say, well, the Taxpayer Federation thing, that is a political organization, ultimately. Andrew Scheer, Pierre Polyev, now running for leadership. These are people who became MPs at very young ages, who have been engaged in electoral politics in one form or another for all of their adult lives. There will be no shortage of people that want Jason Kenney on their board, that want him, uh, you know, I'm sure he could have an executive role at a bank if he wanted to. He could walk into something like that. He has the CV for it now with all of his political experience. I think there is a very interesting question. What does Jason Kenney do with the rest of his life? <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm going to be very interested to find out. Catherine, any insights? <laughs> yeah, yeah, actually. Um, so uh, he has this weekly radio show and he says, I want to finish my degree. I want to learn another Wait, language. what degree? Uh, well, he was actually at a theological college. <laughs> yeah, so he wants to learn another language and he wants to get in shape. And he wants to catch up with his friends. And it's, and it's true. There was this leaked audio of a caucus meeting a little while back. And it was a very depressed sounding Jason Kenney saying, I don't have to do this. I could get a job in the private sector and make more money and have my weekends. So uh, I think, I think that's what he's going to do. He's, he'll go to the private sector, have his weekends, get his degree, learn Spanish or something. And will Alberta and the conservative movement be okay without him? 
can I just add something to this? Just say, I think it's just really important, which is that um, the movement is at a really, like everything I've been talking about shows this movement is at a very precarious point. And, you know, something that is a positive about Jason Kenney is that although he has expressed a lot of the conservative stuff that, you know, progressives really dislike, he's a really good avatar for that stuff. I was at one of his first speeches when he came to Alberta to unite the parties, and a woman stood up there and, you know, started saying some horrible stuff about Muslims. And, you know, I have a Muslim wife and my in-laws are all Muslim. And it's like, you start to hear that and you start to just want, like get that rage building in you. Jason Kenney shut her down immediately and went on this like long off-the-cuff speech about how important Muslims have been to Alberta. You know, the first mosque in Canada was in Edmonton. Alberta had the first ever Muslim cabinet minister. He knew a bunch of stuff off the top of his head that I had no idea about. And it was about a five-minute rant shutting this woman down. And I think about that moment a lot because Kenny wasn't afraid to do that. He had this sort of intellectual integrity and the intellectual ability to like know the stuff also um, to do this in front of a crowd of people who might have turned against him. You know, it might have been an unpopular thing to say. Like he didn't know. And I don't know if the current crop would be able to do that. Mm-hmm. There's, a, I think, a fear of being booed that is really unhelpful. And there's sort of a toxic element that's creeping in. Um, you know, I think we're all aware of this. I often wonder if it's a tiny element or a larger element. And I think that people like Jason Kenney, you know, as much as I'm sure people on the left will be laughing when they hear this, that Jason Kenney would be some avatar of, uh, you know, human integrity. I think he did a really good job of that. I think it was important to him. And it's something I think we really need in this moment. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Madam Speaker, point of order. What is your point of order, Stuart? I just wanted to give a quick shout out to the Ontario election. Um, We are a politics podcast. The election is in a couple of days and we're not even talking about it. And that's the right decision. We were correct (laughs) in not talking about this election. Um, It really sucks. It's almost as bad as the federal election. I'm pretty sure... The seats are barely going to change. Uh, we haven't talked about anything. No one's paid attention. Doug Ford has been just giving money out left, right, and center as his election platform. I got a $400 check because I don't have to renew my minivan anymore, the license plates. I got money in the mail from Doug Ford for that. That's his platform. And I just wanted to say that this election sucks. Not a point of order, but oh my God, does this election suck. <laughs> 
Madam Speaker, I have a point of order. What is your point of order, Murad? My point of order is a callback to my first ever point of order, which was about the absolutely disastrous state of the ATIP system uh, in this country. But I want to complain about one file in particular. I'm just going to use this to air a grievance I have with Finance Canada. So uh, I have currently, because I am my brain works this way, I made a spreadsheet. Uh, I have six outstanding requests with Finance Canada. They are an average of 661 days overview, an average. And on one of these requests, which I filed in January 2020, the tax policy branch has not even bothered to get the files and give them to the ATIP officer. Now, why am I telling you this incredibly boring story? Because the finance minister currently is Christopher Friedland. You may have heard of her. And she's a former journalist herself. And so I think the finance minister should, if she were aware of the state of the aid process in her own department, uh, should be ashamed of it. Uh, as someone who's been on the other end of this, uh, seeking public accountability, the fact that it has taken the finance department two and a half years, they've been sitting on this request, and they have yet to even start the process properly is an embarrassment not just for the minister, but for the country. That is about as calm as I can be talking about this. Uh, but I just wanted to point out that fixing this problem is not some niche interest for just people like me who file a lot of ATIPs. It's in the interest of the country. And the government that talks so much about how transparent it wants to be and tries to draw a distinction with the previous government on its transparency should fix the fucking ATIP system. Not a point of order. But, and I've got two points. Number one, we appreciate your perseverance in this issue, Murad. Thank you so much. Number two, the reason why my voice is, sucks today is because I was at a journalism conference, the first in real life conference in three years this weekend in Montreal, where I can confirm that journalists and people who care about journalism across the country are extremely frustrated that the ATIP system remains unfixed by the Trudeau government, who promised to fix it time and time again. So if you care about transparency, this is probably an issue you should look into. Madam Speaker, point of <laughs> order. I have been enjoying the uh, last Battle of Alberta NHL series, but I have been so rudely interrupted by ads about Ontario gambling sites and speaking of the Ontario election... Ontario attack ads! I cannot gamble on Ontario sites. I cannot vote in the Ontario election. I don't want to see Doug Ford or Andrew Horwath on my screen. This is clearly an attempt to fuel my Western alienation, and I ask that you find this a point of order. <laughs> um, not a point of order, but I apologize on behalf of Ontario for interrupting your sporting enjoyment. That's brilliant. No... <laughs> Albertan wants Eastern bastards on their screen. Any <laughs> so the United States has a new trade deal with the Indo-Pacific region, and Canada is not part of it. Last week, Joe Biden announced a trade agreement with a dozen countries, including South Korea, Japan, India, and Australia, in an attempt to counter China's influence in the region. 
Again, Canada was not part of that deal, but it is actively working on its own Indo-Pacific strategy. Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie said she'll reveal a plan in the coming weeks, whatever that means. According to Jolie, Canada is also working on rebuilding its relationship with China. The relationship has been tense since Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou was arrested in December 2018 and China detained two Canadian citizens in retaliation. Meanwhile, Trudeau recently announced a ban on Huawei's 5G equipment over national security concerns following intelligence sharing partners in the United States, Britain, Australia, and New Zealand. This decision was in the works for a very long time. So today, I want to talk about the importance of the Indo-Pacific region to Canada, what it means that Canada is being left out of the U.S.'s new trade agreement, and how China fits into it all. Very easy topics. Murad, start us off. How important is our relationship with this region of the world? Um, I mean, it's incredibly important because you and I are both from there. So uh, <laughs> what what could be more important? That's it. Full stop. <laughs> Full stop. That's the end of it. Um, I want to sort of set the stage a little bit for this deal that the U.S. has done. So the Obama administration sort of spearheaded this set of trade talks for what ultimately became the Trans-Pacific Partnership or uh, the Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership because Canada uh, had to kind of get its foot in on the naming. And so that deal covers 10 countries in the Asia-Pacific region, including seven of the ones that are in this new uh, deal with the U.S. Uh, and that is a formal trade agreement. Like, it, it, it's a treaty. It's got uh, specific provisions. What the U.S. has done is basically it's got a bunch of countries together, and those countries have said, we sort of are interested together in a bunch of the same stuff. Stuff like the digital economy, stuff like supply chain resilience. We will now go ahead and negotiate some binding commitments, some agreements between us on how we're going to pursue these things. So Canada's official position is, well, we have CPTPP, uh, which is two letters longer than it needs to be and a mouthful as a consequence. Uh, and therefore, <laughs> we don't need to be a part of this uh, group because we actually already have trade deals with most of these countries. And the two biggest economies that aren't in CPTPP, that are in the IPEF, which is the US thing, the US thing is the IPEF, are India and Indonesia. And Canada is currently negotiating bilateral trade deals with both of those countries. So from Ottawa's perspective, it's like we have most of these countries already. Uh, and the big two that are out, we're doing deals with them, so we don't need to be in this. Now, that is kind of bullshit for two reasons. Uh, one, your existing trade agreement does not account for things that uh, typically happen after it. And you have to imagine that the U.S. is not going into this saying, we just want the same terms as CPTPP. Presumably, there will be some advance on the things that happened in CPTPP. So, you know, currently, the deal doesn't include reducing any tariffs or anything like that, which is what typically is in a trade deal. But some of the stuff that they've talked about making agreements on include things like uh, standard setting for digital the digital economy. This sounds like the most boring thing in the world, but it's incredibly <laughs> important because the rules of how a technology is allowed to work in the world, that determines where you can export, uh, which companies succeed in that field. This is really important stuff, and Canada won't be at the table while this stuff is being negotiated. Now, to be clear, Canada hasn't said we won't take part. And Canada hasn't said whether they wanted to take part and weren't allowed to because the Canadian government does not provide specific answers to specific questions when you ask them. What they say is things like, we're watching it closely. I wish them luck with that. So the fact that Canada is not part of this 
uh, agreement, you know, yes, we have our CPTPP and these other two agreements that we're working on already, but just to use the case of India, because I know the India trade relationship details quite well at this point. Canada has been negotiating a trade deal with India for uh, over a decade now. Initial negotiations on this deal actually started in the mid-2000s. And one of the reasons why it hasn't happened... Wait, I'm sorry, the mid-2000s? Yes, correct. So one of the reasons why that deal has not actually, you know, landed yet, uh, there's many reasons, government changes, uh, changes in policy and whatever, but it's that for a few years now, lots of different places have wanted to agree a deal with India because they see India as a growing economy with an emerging middle class who they'd like to sell stuff to. Uh, Canada is not unique in having had this insight, uh, as with many of the insights that Canada has. Uh, and given a choice between negotiating a deal with now 14 economies, including the U.S., or Canada, which would you choose? Like, I live here and I know which one I would choose. So, you know, there are consequences to not being involved in this agreement. The one thing I just want to say before I start monologuing on this is, uh, you mentioned the China Wait, you haven't been monologuing already? Uh, well, before I stop monologuing on sorry, before I stop monologuing on you mentioned China, and uh, this is interesting because uh, the IPEF is not explicitly framed as a China containment strategy, but that's kind of what it is. And so was CPTPP. CPTPP was a deal that was like, we need to engage with Asia before China basically uh, scoops up all of the economic opportunity in this region. So the fact of being excluded from this, as well as AUKUS, which is the like deal that Canada insists about nuclear submarines, only to Australia and other everybody else in the agreement is like, no, actually, this is quite a lot more than that. Um, those are all part of the U.S. doing China containment. And if Canada isn't hooked into the U.S.'s China containment strategy, that has consequences for us. Stuart, is it reading too much to assume after, you know, Murad's very detailed, nuanced explanation that this says something about our lackluster place on the world stage or just the fact that we don't even try to find a place on the world stage? Yeah, well, first of all, I just love that Murad turns his SAS level up to 100 for trade talks. And <laughs> <laughs> that's what you want to save it for, I think. I know who I am. <laughs> <laughs> but that was a tremendous overview. And I think that I think you're right. I think we should be worried about this. I don't think there are many, you know, world trade experts in Canada who are not worried about this. I think that's a pretty comprehensive feeling. And the excuse for AUKUS was that, oh, you know, we don't really care about submarines, so this one isn't for us. And that kind of stuff just isn't going to fly. And I think probably the more interesting question is, why? Like, what is it that is causing people to exclude us from this? And if you want to throw out a few wild speculative guesses, um, when we were doing the CPTPP, that was a topic of conversation among our allies afterwards which is the perceived unseriousness of this government in that they really wanted to change the name so they could bring that home and say, hey, we got the name. It says progressive now in the title. And then, you know, there was the former prime minister of Australia just roasting Justin Trudeau because he wanted to talk about his socks at, you know, one of these meetings. This kind of stuff, I think, erodes our credibility over time. And the other guess that I would take is that, you know, one piece of reporting I would love to get, it's hard now because we don't have as many reporters in Washington. The Washington reporters aren't interested in what the U.S. thinks of Canada. But I am curious how serious they think we are about China, because, you know, there's a, a definitely a harder line developing in the State Department in the U.S. about China. You can see that just from the Secretary of State, uh, Antony Blinken, 
saying things that have frankly surprised me about China. Um, they're far more hawkish than I expected. And if they think that Give Canada, us an example, Stuart. Um, well, on Taiwan, I think is the big one. Um, they're saying things about Taiwan that, you know, maybe you wouldn't say out loud if you were extremely worried about some upcoming skirmish with China. And I think that, you know, the Canadian government has always, you know, partly out of necessity, I think they felt like they had to sort of calm the waters when the two Michaels were over there. But it's not like we've seen an outbreak of hawkishness, except for perhaps the, the Huawei decision recently. So I wonder if maybe the Canadians are, the Canadian government is trying to regain some credibility on this, um, partly because they're seeing the consequences now. The third thing I will say is that we... Uh, after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we talked a lot about military spending and, you know, spending up to the NATO amount of 2% of GDP. Canada didn't really, we made sort of a token gesture of that in the budget, but it wasn't really a gesture that made you think they were serious about it. Um, and part of these, you know, the, the defense treaty, especially, you have to bring something to the table for these. You have to have some reason to be included in the in the treaty. And I can't imagine what, if I were the foreign minister of Canada, or if I were Justin Trudeau, what would I be telling people that I bring to the table right now? It's really hard to come up with an answer. Yeah, there was a really interesting article in Reuters about how Canada's delayed ban of Huawei technology shows we're lacking a strategy in the region and around the world. I wanted to bring up a quote they included from Charles Burton, who's a former Canadian diplomat who worked in China. And the quote says this, the word is out that Canada is just not as reliable a partner as it used to be. Australia, the UK, and the US are collaborating on security in the Asia-Pacific. And the last time I looked at the map, the UK was not an Asia-Pacific country, but Canada is. Catherine, with the shift in power happening around the world in the wake of the Ukraine war and everything Stuart and Murad have, have described so far, what do you make of that? I'm thinking back to, uh, I believe it was 2019, when there was the height of the tensions uh, on the Huawei scandal. And something that happened here was China banned our canola. They s said there was some, some pest in the canola and they, they couldn't take it. And I, th I think what's at stake here is if you are too hawkish, if you are too inflammatory on, on things like Taiwan, you have to realize how integrated our, our economies are with China still. I mean, there's, what, $100 billion in trade back and forth. And I, I would hop on onto what uh, Stuart was saying about some of the things that were said out loud. I almost think it's a good thing that Canada wasn't wasn't at those negotiations because Joe Biden just spit out, despite the official one China policy, he just spit out, yeah, we're willing to intervene militarily in Taiwan. Um, so uh, I guess you risk not being at the table, but at the other side of it, do we want to get drawn into conflict or do we want to take a more diplomatic approach? Um, and, and speaking of the, the Ukraine situation, um, at the international court, there was, there was a quote that stuck out to me where the judge from China, although it's, it's kind of funny and ironic when you consider Taiwan, the judge from, from China said, China prefers diplomacy, respects sovereign territory, and and wants to see things done through alliances and diplomacy as opposed to invasion. So I think that's sort of an angle that we as 
Canada should be looking at. Like, do we want to get in, involved in this war with two nuclear powers, or or do we want to take a more diplomatic approach and diversify through trade through other nations to reduce reliance? I guess that's what I've been thinking about as I'm listening to this conversation. No, that's fair. And I think I'm in the same place where we've had some conversations about international politics and, and Canada's place in that. And and we always come to the same conclusion, right? Like Canada is struggling to figure this out. And at some point, like I want to ask this explicitly, is Canada struggling or is it the Trudeau government that's been struggling? And if it is the latter, what are we missing here? Are we missing someone who is knowledgeable about foreign affairs? Are we missing someone who is willing to stretch the boundaries of Canadian foreign policy? Like, what is it that's holding this specific government back from inserting itself at a time when trade relationships matter more than anything? You know, we're seeing global food supply shortages and we're seeing energy crisis that requires us to collaborate and cooperate and talk to each other around the world. And yet Canada keeps falling short. To your question, you know, which which one is it? One way to look at this is to look at the the alternative, right? So um, Scott Aitchison, who I feel like it's my duty to bring him up on every <laughs> forum I'm on until the leadership race ends. But I bring him up because he's running as kind of the policy guy in the race. The bridge builder, the like, let's all join hands and be nice to each other, but also the policy guy in the race, the wonk. Uh, and his foreign policy sort of manifesto includes the following points. Meeting the 2% NATO target that Stuart was talking about. Difficult thing to do. A lot of money to spend. Banning Huawei from our 5G networks. The Trudeau government has now finally done that. Recognizing Taiwan as an independent, sovereign, democratic country. That's a big shout. And moving Canada's embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. That fifth one feels like sort of out of step with the magnitude of the others, but sure. So those are the big ideas of the sort of policy guy in the race for the opposition party, right? In terms of engaging with the world, could Canada take a more hawkish position on China publicly? Sure. Uh, And I don't want to belabor this point, but I do think it's important. There's a pretty binary question I have. Were we asked to be part of these Indo-Pacific talks or not? Did we ask to be part of them or not? It's not like they've been happening in secret. Uh, There have been reports about this for weeks. I've been tracking them for months, actually, all the way going back to the end of last year. Did we ask to be part of them or not? Were we excluded or not? The Trudeau government will not give you a straight answer to that question. I've tried asking. So we lack the fact base to even answer some of these questions because the government chooses only to engage on things that it wants to engage on. And it chooses only to say the same six set of things. And I think that makes a real difference out in the world, because if all you have is a government that's willing to, you know, sort of quote the same set of lines, like Huawei is a good example of this, right? You know, Melanie Jolie said our Indo-Pacific strategy will be announced in the coming weeks. The Huawei instance proves that the words coming weeks can literally mean three years, Mm -hmm. which is what they meant in this instance. Four years, actually, going back to 2018. It's a game of inches, coming weeks, coming weeks, in due course, in the coming months, you know, they've used all of this, these terms to sort of signal timelines over the course of those four years. And you know what? Canada, to the rest of the world, does it matter that much? Like, I don't know. Yeah, I, I think the better question, too, is are we even good at convening these days? It's gotten to that point. And part of it here is the just frustrating thing about this government is that I think 
you know, we can probably see there is a good chance that this deal with the NDP is a landing period for Justin Trudeau. He may run again, I don't know, but it seems to me like they're trying to do some legacy things with minimum friction for the next couple of years. None of those legacy things are in foreign policy or trade. Um, it's all domestic stuff. And, you know, fair enough. I think, you know, governments are allowed to have priorities. And as a prime minister, you're allowed to pick the priorities that you think will set your legacy. Um, the problem they have, though, is they just look so unserious about the things that aren't at the top of their list. Like, it's just completely off their radar. Mm -hmm. um, and that unseriousness, I think, has sort of traveled around the world to where that's how we're perceived by the rest of the of the, of the globe. Yeah, there's only so many pretty photo ops on the world stage that will, you know, make for foreign policy. After a certain point, it's like, you know, if you're a country that, and, and I know Murad's heard me rant about this many times, but if you're a country that actually gives a shit about immigration, and if you're a country that actually cares about your relationship with the communities that these immigrants are coming from, and then also understands the vital importance of having relationships with countries that can, you know, provide food and, and other resources that you don't have and that you can provide to them, then you have to do more. And I just, you know, while you were all talking, I kept thinking about how in a recent trip to Europe, Melanie Jolie said, and of course Canada is one of the most European countries in the world while being fiercely North American. First of all, what the F does that mean? Second of all, there just seems to be a complete lack of understanding and acknowledgement of the world from this government. And I would say I smell FOIs, but we know we're not going to learn anything from that for at least 10 to 15 years. So we'll wait for the coming weeks, <laughs> whatever that means. You know, I think part of the problem is that this overshadows work that has actually been done. So if you talk to people who engage with Karina Gould when she was Minister of International Development, there was a bunch of stuff done on the way that Canada does international development, particularly through a gender lens, that as I understand it from people who know far more about it than me and I consider to be credible, there were some significant changes. I don't know that they fixed all of the, you know, obviously we have not fixed all of the problems, but even in the the specific targeted areas in which this government has managed to make changes. Those are overshadowed by things like, as Stuart said, sticking the words comprehensive and progressive into the CPTPP. If it's all branding, then the things that are in line with the branding that do have actual impact in the world, like our international development efforts, those get sort of swept away as more branding. They are easy to dismiss because they are in line with the sort of ideological branding message, even if they are legitimately good and successful efforts, because the broader frame is not necessarily holding up under scrutiny. Okay, on that note, let's adjourn. That's the backbench. A lot happened today while we were recording. A long-awaited report on military sexual misconduct was just released with over 50 recommendations, including one to try military sexual assault cases in civilian court. The federal government also started talking about further gun control measures while we were recording. And Bank of Canada remains in the headlines for reasons we're still trying to figure out. We'll keep talking about all of this and more. Next week, we'll bring you another in-depth one-on-one conversation. Stay tuned for that. Thank you all for giving us your afternoon. Again, we love having you back. Um, Catherine, amazing, amazing debut. Where do people follow your work until your next appearance on the backbench? 
Uh, you can check out my work at politicstoday.news or you can follow me on Twitter at C Grykowski, so C G R I W K O W S K Y. Stuart, where do people follow you for your conservative analysis? Uh, you can check me out at thehub.ca uh, or on Twitter at Stuart X Thompson. And I hope we get a football point of order sometime soon. It's coming, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> and Murad, where do people follow you? Uh, thelogic.co uh, is where I publish articles, and M-U-R-A-D-A-G-M on Twitter is where I sometimes say stuff. Keep sending us your questions, your concerns, your rants. You can email us, backbench at canadaland.com. We're also on Twitter at backbenchcast. I'm Fatma Sayed, and you can find me on Twitter at Fatma B. Sayed. You can find my work on The Narwhal. This episode was produced by Kevin Sexton with additional production by Tristan Capacione. Our managing editor is Kieran Outhorn. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. Thanks for listening. See y'all soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.